I would ask you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. We're in the last chapter of this book, and we'll see how far we get tonight, but I would uh, ideally like to finish, but we'll see if we can make it through uh, the rest of this chapter. We're in verse 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read through this chapter. At that time shall Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And, every, and someone said uh, to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long, will, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand it. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. But the words are shut up and sealed until the, end of the, until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and you shall, in, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now let me remind you that there, are, that there is a five-kingdom paradigm that is repeated uh, throughout the book of Daniel. We saw it uh, in, Dan, in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, it's, Bur it's, it's Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And then the fifth kingdom that is going to come on the scene is the everlasting kingdom of Messiah. In Daniel 2, it was, it was the uh, image that had gold and silver and bronze and iron representing those four kingdoms that was smashed by the stone. In Daniel 7, it is the lion, the bear, the leopard, the great beast, and then in that chapter, the Son of Man comes on the scene and ushers in this fifth kingdom. In Daniel chapter 8, it was the ram and the goat. And then in chapter 10, and that was the kingdoms of Persia and Greece. And then in chapter 9, it is Daniel's 70, 70 weeks in the kingdom of Rome. It's what is the focus at the end of that chapter. Now in Daniel chapter 10 through 12, we again saw Persia in verse, chapter 11, verse 2. We saw Greece in verses 3 through 35. 
And then the passage that we took up last time was in verses 36 and following, where there is uh, a shift to some other king and kingdom, uh, beginning in verse 36. And I argued last time uh, that uh, we should expect to see following Greece in verse 35, those days come to an end, that we should expect the, uh, the prophecy to turn to, as it has in every other case, that it should turn to Rome and the days in which Messiah's kingdom will come. And then last week as we were going through those verses in 36 through, we got to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, what we did in fact see is that the historical events of that period, the period of Rome leading up to the days of Christ, that that does fit uh, with what we see here right up to A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple. And we closed last time by reading a number of those very just horrible, horrible historical accounts of what those very last days in Jerusalem was like. Our text tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12 that, it is, that there has never been uh, such a time since there was a nation until that time and that uh, it is a, a time that there will never be a time like that again. We see that in the scripture. We see that in Matthew's gospel as well. And so we read that horrible, those horrible descriptions and we close uh, with the observation that uh, that horrible picture that just truly uh, is disturbing uh, is a picture, a warning to us of the judgment that is coming uh, for those that are not part of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. A warning to us to, uh, to repent and to believe in the Messiah. Now tonight we're going to come to uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, but to those last, uh, the last sentence in that chapter, and it begins with these words, but at that time your people shall be delivered. And so we have this terrible destruction, but at that same time, Daniel is told that your people are going to be delivered. Now back in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, Daniel 9, 24, we have that great statement about the salvation that is going to be accomplished, accomplished during the 70 weeks of Daniel. It says there that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, and these are the things that are going to happen. And I would suggest to you that this is what we're reading about in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, your people will be delivered. What does that mean? This is what it means. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. That is what is going to happen uh, in bringing about this salvation that is going to come here in chapter 12, Verse 1. Note that at the very time that destruction and desolation comes upon the nation and the city, that what is called here, your people will be delivered. They'll be saved. They will be rescued. And of course, it, the question that comes to our mind is, is, well, how can that be? How can there be this horrible destruction? And yet God's people are being delivered and saved. Well, I would suggest to you that the next phrase in our verse explains that to us. The next phrase in our, in our verse says, Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And so it is the elect, the true Israel, the church, 
that is being delivered even as uh, God's people of the old dispensation are being destroyed. And I would suggest that this uh, deliverance is twofold. It is the salvation, the spiritual salvation that comes into the world as we just read about in chapter 9, verse 24. That reality is coming to its completion and being fulfilled. But secondly, as we've talked about earlier, uh, Christians actually were spared. Christians following the, uh, the instruction of Christ that when you see the city being uh, when you see the city being surrounded and you see the desolation that has started, as we talked about last time, when John Giscula and the, and the zealots take over the temple, they weren't, they weren't warranted to do that. They enter the temple complex and they take it over. And we see that desolation. And, uh, and the Christians did flee. And it is remarkable to note, I mentioned this before, I think, but I'll mention it again. It is remarkable to note that there's not one reference to Christians being killed in Jerusalem, in any of the historical accounts of the carnage and the massive loss of life. It's just extraordinary that when you look through the historical accounts, there's no accounts of any specific language anywhere that Christians were killed in the middle of all that uh, destruction. Now, in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, because verse 2 talks about resurrection, there are many, many, many interpreters of the book of Daniel that jump immediately from the kingdom of Greece past Rome, past the days of Christ, all the way to the future and assume that this passage starting in 1136 through the end of Daniel must only have to do with the future. And from our perspective today, still future. And I've, of course, uh, argued that, uh, this, uh, that the uh, text is in many, many places uh, brought us into the historical context of uh, A.D. 66 through uh, 70 in these accounts. But that is often the case. Many, all, all futurists believe that this entire passage has, has nothing to do with Rome and the ad, first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. I suggest that this verse is entirely consistent with the first advent of Christ. The days of the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, and the establishment of the new covenant and the kingdom of Messiah. Let me see if I can defend that to you. Consider the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That is something that, this is one of those Old Testament places. Resurrection is clearly a, a theme in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there are not that many explicit places. But this is one of those explicit places that's clearly talking about resurrection. Let me show you just a couple of others. Isaiah 26, 19. I'm going to point out two to you. Isaiah 26, 19. Which says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so there's one prophecy that's very clearly about resurrection from the dead. Let me give you one other, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. 
Ezekiel chapter 37. Verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and, and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, just a couple of examples there, plus our, our verse in Daniel. Now, when is this promise fulfilled? This promise of the resurrection of the dead. When does that become a, a reality in this world? Well, turn with me to John chapter 5. Our Lord is going to speak very directly to this issue. John chapter 5. In verse 25. And I'm going to read down through verse 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that language certainly reflects what we read in our verse in Daniel 12, 2. Concerning those that will be uh, some to life and some to uh, contempt. Now note the already and not yet reality of this doctrine here in John chapter 5. Christ says the hour is coming. I would suggest the second advent when our, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes in his second coming. But he also says and is now here. I would suggest that is his first advent, the days in which he's actually speaking these words. And note that the dead will hear and live now and in the hour that is yet to come. So when does resurrection of the dead become a reality, both spiritual and physical re resurrection? I would suggest to you it becomes a reality at the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his first coming. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of resurrection through and through. It is filled with resurrection from its very beginning until its last days. Spiritual resurrection is going to happen throughout the days of this kingdom. And physical, re physical resurrection is going to be accomplished at the consummation of this period of his kingdom. But even with physical resurrection itself, that we always think about in terms of the last day and the end of, of, of time, even with physical resurrection, it begins in the days of Rome and the inauguration of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the resurrected Christ that is the king 
of this kingdom that begins in the days of Rome. It is the resurrected Christ that enters into heaven. It is the resurrected Christ that is exalted to the right hand of God. And it is the resurrected Christ that begins his ministry of, of intersection, of intercession and, and sovereign rule during these days in this time period. And so resurrection comes on the scene of history, not at the second advent, but at the first advent of our Lord. Look with me to 1 Corinthians and let's see how Paul speaks about this matter. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. And when does that happen? In his first coming, in the first advent of our Lord. Then at his coming, that is his second advent, those who belong to Christ. And so we have this dual aspect to the reality of the resurrection from the dead. Christ the firstfruits. And then those that are His at His coming. And so I would suggest to you then that our verse in, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, that when our vo verse says that as a result of the salvation that is accomplished in verse 1, that the dead will be raised, some to life and some to contempt, that this is a statement that marks the entire span of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ from His first advent and to its consummation at the end of the age. And note the words of Jesus that we read in John 5. The hour has come. It's said another way in John chapter eleven twenty-five: I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will be someday the resurrection and the life. But I right now am the resurrection and the life. I want to turn your attention to one other passage. Very peculiar thing in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 52. Matthew 27 and verse 52. I'm going to begin reading in verse 51 to pick up the paragraph. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think Justin was describing that temple to us, that curtain to us this morning. From top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so I just want to remind you, when we in our mind try to say that if Daniel is talking about the resurrection of the dead, it has to be far, far, far thousands of years into the future. That we have even this peculiar uh, occurrence here in Matthew's gospel, and we don't have time to get into this passage tonight. It would be interesting actually to do so. But we, uh, but we have this, even this uh, statement in Matthew's gospel concerning uh, the resurrection being uh, coming onto the world scene uh, here in this period of Rome in the first advent of our Lord. Back in Daniel, I'm going to try to keep moving along here. 
in verse 3, we read this. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who, uh, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and forever. Now here we see another effect of the coming of Christ into his kingdom. The first was the resurrection of the dead. Here, the focus I would suggest to you is on the effect of spiritual resurrection. That is, the new birth. What happens in the new birth? Well, what happens is, is that because of conversion, for example, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 6, where we're told that God in a creative act causes light to shine out of the darkness of our hearts. It's, it's a creative act of God giving us the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That is the knowledge and the wisdom that we receive in the new birth. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and, re and redemption. He is the wisdom of God that we receive in the new birth. Now, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. I'm not going to take time to turn there and read that now. But the Great Commission. And then... Following that command to go into the nations and make disciples uh, is the power that comes on the, the, the scene in just a few days at Pentecost as God energizes his church to be able to successfully witness and bring many, I would suggest according to our verse here, 12.3, those who turn many to righteousness. That is exactly what is getting ready to happen because what's going to happen? The church is going to explode on the world scene. You know, in just like 300 years, Rome, this evil beast, is going to be a, quote, Christian nation. And who could have ever thought that that would happen in, ever or in such a short, short time? Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That word light being stars or luminaries or sources of light in the world. Exactly what Daniel uh, chapter 12 verse 3 is telling us about God's people in the days to come. And so I'm going to suggest to you that Daniel 11, 36 through 12, 3 is a statement about the final error of Israel and Old Testament religion and the bringing of salvation into the world through Jesus Christ and the appearance of his kingdom into this world. And now beginning in verse 4, we come to the very last section in Daniel's book. It begins by Daniel being addressed directly in verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel is told to seal the book until the time of the end. Now, when he says the time of the end, it's not talking about the end of the world. Uh, it is talking about until the time of the end of this prophetic period. This prophetic period, this 70 weeks of Daniel, is from Daniel's time when he's alive receiving his prophecy until A.D. Uh, 70, maybe about 74 when the Jewish wars finally uh, come to an end. That's the time period that he's talking about. And so he, he is, he's told to seal up uh, this prophecy until that time of the end. 
And so what we would expect is we would expect that when this time comes, the time of Rome, the time of the final destruction of Jerusalem, the time of our Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world, Messiah entering through the world, we would expect that this book would be unsealed. Now I would suggest to you that we see exactly that in Revelation chapter 5. Let's turn there. Daniel has sealed the words of this prophecy up until the time. But in Revelation chapter 5, we're coming to a time that is during the days of Rome. Our Lord Jesus Christ is just now ascending into heaven. This is a picture of his arrival into, his, into heaven following his resurrection. This is his entrance there. And we read these words in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, I would suggest to you that in Daniel, this period of time, the scrolls were sealed until the end. And now, our Lord Jesus Christ, in these last days of this prophecy, is going to unopen this scroll that is uh, sealed with seven seals. Let's read on. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and bring its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Let's stop there for just a moment. You remember what we just read in chapter 9, verse 24, about those things that are going to be accomplished during the time of this, this prophecy? The bringing in of atonement and the bringing in of righteousness and the ending of sin. Who is going to do that? And who is it that's also going to come and stop forever? Old Testament religion. Who is going to do that? Well, that's the question that's been raised here in the verse. And then John says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You recall back in Daniel, in the earlier chapter, where it talks about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming, ascending up and entering the presence of the Ancient of Days? This is exactly what they were talking about there in Daniel's prophecy coming to pass. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him, the right hand of him who's seated on the strong throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So I would suggest to you that that is exactly... Uh, what we see here at the end of this time, Daniel is to seal it up until the end. But here we see it being opened up. 
by our Lord Jesus Christ. In these very days that our prophecy would indicate, the days of Rome, the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would suggest to you that the New Testament speaks about the days of the first advent of Christ in this kind of language. Galatians 4.4, 4, let me just share a couple of verses. Galatians 4.4. 4. says, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that's what we see in the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is the fullness of time. Prophecies have been given for thousands of years, not just Daniel, but before Daniel. All of that finally come into reality, finally being uh, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes in the fullness of time. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These are the last days. And in case there's any misunderstanding, look over to chapter 9, verse 26. Any misunderstanding about these last days. Chapter 9 and verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so when our Lord comes in the first advent, this is the last days. This is the end of the ages. I think the New American Standard says the consummation of the ages. This, these are the last days when the, when, the, uh, when the New Testament letters are going to tell us things like, in the last days, scoffers will come. In the last days, there's going to be uh, false prophets that will lead many away. That is the period, the age that we're living in now that was ushered in with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to kind of skip ahead just a little bit here. Try to see if we can make it in our time this morning. Our verse then, looking back at Daniel, and our text in Daniel, after he's told to shut up uh, the prophecy to the end, we then read, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, Many commentators in the unit don't laugh when I say this. How many of you know the Jetsons? We all know the Jetsons? All right. Many commentators think that this verse is telling us because they're looking at some kind of futuristic, uh, this has nothing to do with the past, this is all, you know, uh, things yet to come, that we're going to be flying around in little Jetson-like uh, vehicles or something like the little Star Wars uh, vehicles, and that's what this prophecy is referring to here about going to and fro. I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding you when I say that there are people, there are many people that don't say that, but there are people that actually say those kind of things. I would suggest to you that what this verse is telling us is this. Look at Jeremiah 5.1. Jeremiah 5.1. Something very different from that. 
where we have this, this same kind of language. It says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. We see it again in Amos uh, chapter 8 and verse 12. Amos chapter 8 and verse 12. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And so in Jeremiah and in Amos, I think we are told what our verse in Daniel means. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. It's the idea that, that people are going to be seeking and looking and trying to discover and know and understand knowledge. We just read about in Hebrews 1, 2, that in these last days, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and given us that final and complete word concerning what is going to be knowledge. And so when these days come, the days of Rome, the days of the first advent of Christ, Christ being the great prophet to his people, comes on the world scene. He speaks as no one has ever spoke before. Uh, we have the revelation that we have in the New Testament. That is what is being referred to when it says that knowledge shall increase. It's exactly what we expect to see. Daniel verse 5. Daniel 12 verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood. One on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the people, power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. That is, the whole prophecy of Daniel is going to be done when the Old Testament people of God, Jerusalem, the city, the temple, all that, when it is shattered, it will be the end of all these things. Now, this is a similar scene to chapter 8 where there were several angels present, including one that we understood there to be the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself. The angel here asked, for Daniel's sake, how long to the end? I suggest that the one clothed in linen and answering this question is the Son of God. And note what he does. He raises both hands to take an oath. Now, how many hands are you supposed to raise when you take an oath? According to the Old Testament. One hand. In Deuteronomy 32.40, God raises one hand to make an oath. In Revelation 10.5, an angel raises his hand in order to swear an oath. So what is the significance of raising two hands? Well, I would suggest to you it indicates great solemnity and importance there is, there is, in anything God says, certainty, but there's extreme certainty that the things that are mentioned here will happen exactly as, uh, as the one making this vow says. I would suggest to you that this is a unique time in history 
that will bring in the promised Messiah. It will shatter what was to be the holy people and raise up a kingdom uh, of people who are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to use the language of 1 Peter 2.9. That this time of great tribulation is described in our verse here as a time, times, and half a time. Now, that is a confirmation I would again suggest to you that we have our time period right because if you look back at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we see that same language, time, times, and half a time, and clearly that is a reference to what happens in the days of the fourth beast, Rome. The period of tribulation referred to is this period that we've been talking about in the last week or two, A.D. 66 through 70, ending with the destruction of the temple. It is half of the 70th week of Daniel's final week in his 70 weeks, three and a half years, time times, and half a time. Now, I believe that we grossly underestimate the importance of the destruction of the temple in history. It is the events that shape the history of the church and God's people that are really the important events of history. It's not the events that when we look at secular history from a non-Christian's perspective that we think the great events are. That is not what the great events are. The great events are those things that shape the life of the church and God's people. And what shapes the life and history of God's people the most? Well, the most would be our Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world, his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. That's what shapes it the most. But next to that, I would suggest to you that the destruction of Jerusalem and the ending of the nation of Israel in Old Testament religion is the next big event in significance in history. It undoes what the Exodus did and what the giving of the law at Sinai set up and established. It brings to an end 1,500 years of the life of Israel as a nation and certain practices and certain uh, things that were associated with the wor worship of God. It all comes to an end. It is huge. The temple was the very center of Jewish life. And so Jesus puts an end to these things spiritually when he dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. He puts an end to the old covenant, the old sacrifices. But here Jesus himself breaking open those seals, advancing the prophecy that was given long ago to Daniel. He is also physically bringing an end to Old Testament, Old Covenant life as he brings an end to the temple, to the priesthood, to the sacrifice, to the city, to the nation, and to this very day, those things have never returned to this world, and I suggest they never will to the end of time. Let me just remind you, as a side note, I've mentioned this to you before, that these, this idea of time, times, and half a time is going to be picked up again by John in the book of Revelation as a pattern uh, that he's going to use and explain things. That he uses it in chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 in the book of Revelation. Let's move on to verses 8 through 10. 
I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And so Daniel is said to let this be. And we're going to see that again in verse 13 in just a moment, that Daniel was told to, to let this be, which means that uh, for you, Daniel, your role in all of this has finally come to an end. And so I suggest that's what he's referring to here. Many will be saved, the elect of verse 1, but the wicked will not be changed by all of these events. Even with the increase of knowledge that we read about in verse 4, without grace, the wicked will never understand. But the wise will know and understand. They will learn and they will know how to live in dark and difficult times that are to come in the future. Verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. If you want to waste a week, go on the internet and type in Daniel 12, 1290, space, 1335, and you can just fight, spend all the time you want reading. Who knows what? It will be quite extraordinary for you, I promise. Uh, because it is one of those controversial statements. Um, how do we interpret and understand those very precise numbers? What are we to take those to mean? Now, the dispensationalists say, the ones who are saying all of this is in the future, is that the Great Tribulation is three and a half years. That's 1260 days. And it's going to take 30 days to clean up. And it's going to take 45 days to kind of establish the government and get it all set in order. And that's your 1260, 1290, 1335. Uh, we don't have any reason to possibly know how any of that could be true or not true. But that's what uh, a dispensationalist, uh, you hear that kind of explanation for these words. Let me suggest that knowing the time frame of all these events, which we know to be the days of Rome, the first advent of Christ, is helpful. First of all, 1290 days. The period in 66 A.D., when the high priest is murdered, the temple holy places are taken over by the rebel factions, John Giscula being uh, one of those principal people that's responsible for that. And proper religious life is disrupted from that time. A desolation of the temple, by the way, that is by, at the hands of the Jewish people. Those are Jewish people doing that. To the final destruction of the temple by Titus and the desolation of the temple by the Romans in 70 A.D. was just slightly more than three and a half years. And I would suggest that's the, the, the probable time frame, almost the necessary time frame of this 1290 days. That period was actually just slightly more than three and a half years. Now, there are many uh, schemes with specific starting days and ending days that explain the 1260 days, that is the three and a half years of tribulation and how that ends with the destruction of the temple. I just make this interesting observation because there's many of those and some of them seem very interesting. 
uh, to consider. But let me make just this one observation that, that if in fact the destruction of temple, the temple is the ending of the 1260 days to three and a half years, that it is actually a sober fact of history that the city of Jerusalem fell and the war inside the city ended 30 days after the destruction of the temple. And so 1290 days brings us actually to the end of the fighting in the city of Jerusalem. Now many say, and I suggest to you that the language is specific enough, the reference to the burnt offering and the abomination that brings desolation here in our verse uh, is specific enough that we know it has to be this period, AD 66, through the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So there's not much uh, debate really about that issue. This is the time in which the temple is violated and made desolate. Now some see the, 13, the 1335 days as just being 45 more days at which time things settle down and the danger inside the city begin, begins to wane. Uh, that many uh, hold that view. Let me suggest a possible alternative, and I know we're almost out of time, so let's race along. About the 1,335 days. I suggest that it's very possible that this 1,335 days comes after the 1,290 days. And for this reason, the temple was burned in August the 3rd, 70 AD. And the fortress at Masada falls on March the 30th, 74 AD, 1,335 days later. Now the Jewish war is going to continue for three and a half years after the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem falls. That's not the end of that seven year period. War is going to continue. The Romans are going to go out and they're going to root out pockets of resistance. They're going to continue to clean up. And the very last thing that is left standing, the very last spot that's left is Masada. And you know the story of Masada. The very last stand is made in March of 74. You probably know this story. It was the, it was the attack on Masada by a group of Jewish extremists back in 66 AD that actually started this whole war. It was the trigger that kicked off this war. So it seems very fitting that it is going to all come to the bitter end at Masada as well. There were 960 zealots trapped in the fortress. They preferred to die rather than surrender, setting fire to all the buildings and committing mass suicide. According to legend, lots were drawn and ten men were chosen to kill everyone else, including the wives and the children. Then from these ten, one was chosen to kill the nine and to commit suicide so that actually only one person committed suicide in violation of the law. That's the legend of Masada. Now, there were only a handful of survivors, two women and five children who were able to hide themselves in a cistern during the final hours, and so they escaped death. And so the truth of what actually happened uh, versus the legend is somewhat uncertain. But Masada did become a symbol of Jewish heroism and resistance to the enemies of Israel. And a, a small group of men there did, in fact, hold out 
for three years against the, the power of Rome. But with the fall of Masada, it was uh, finally safe in Israel. Hostilities really did in the nation come to an end at that point. And our verse says, blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. And we have a fulfillment of what we see in Hebrews 8.13. Yes. I would suggest that what has finally come at the end of the Jewish, the Jewish war is finally in the seven year period is finally over. Daniel's 70 weeks have come to an end. And we have what is said here in Hebrews. And remember, this is written just before AD 70. And all these things happen that we're talking about. It says, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, or some versions say to disappear. And that is exactly what in the very next few years, and within probably 10 or 15 years of when this is written, all of these things are, will have been accomplished. So let's look very quickly at verse 13 and finish our chapter in our book. And go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. And so Daniel is addressed again. He's told to go your way because his role in all of this has uh, been fulfilled, that none of these things that are in the prophecy now are going to happen in his lifetime. Daniel is told to go in your life and rest, enter rest. And he is told that uh, at the end of days, you're going to have your allotted portion. Now to a Jew... He certainly would have thought that that means that at the end of time, he would receive his allotted portion of land in the promised land. That was what any Jew would have thought that those words would have meant. And that is what I'm sure Daniel would have actually uh, taken that uh, to mean from his perspective. Now, this book, Daniel, is a remarkable book. It starts with Daniel as a young man. Maybe, what, 12 or 14 years old. Uh, he will have some of the most incredible experiences that anyone has ever lived. Tragedy, destruction, exile is going to happen to his homeland. Dreams, visions, prophecies, fiery furnace, lion's den, miracles are going to happen in his life. Daniel will stand face to face with the most powerful man in the world, in the whole world during his day. He himself will become one of the truly important men in the world with his role in that kingdom. Daniel will see angels in visions and in real life. Not just angels, but the mightiest of angels, the chief angels, the arch angel himself. More important than that, Daniel will be visited by the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, during his life. Daniel will see his glory 
As he ascends to the ancient of days, and Daniel will receive from him the deep secrets of things to come. Daniel is now an old man, probably in his 80s. From his teenage years to very old age, he has been faithful. Do you know how hard it is to do that? It is remarkable grace in this in the story of this man's life. Let uh, me re- let me remind us all that it is not how we start that matters, it is how we finish that really matters. And what we see in Daniel is that he starts well, but more importantly, that he ends well. What do we learn from Daniel? We learn that nations serve God's purposes and ends, that Christ is sovereign over every detail of history, and he establishes and knows the end from the beginning. When we go plowing through all those Long details of chapter 11. Uh, It's extraordinary what we see there in the prophetic word. The nations rise and fall because of the winds of heaven. The nations are subject to the judgment of God. They rise and just as quickly they fall into, into nothing. The nations of this world are going to be a beast towards the people of God. We learned that from the book of Daniel. And God's people are going to be challenged to live faithfully in this world just as Daniel was in his day. And in the context of Daniel's prophecy, the New new Covenant comes into the world and the Old Covenant is utterly removed. Messiah's kingdom has come and it is a kingdom that will never end. This kingdom is a kingdom that is marked by spiritual salvation as we read in Daniel 9.24 tonight. Daniel's God can be trusted and obeyed. He is worthy to be trusted and obeyed. And if we're to follow Daniel's example and learn from him, that is what we will strive to do. So that is the end of Daniel. We have any questions about anything we talked about tonight. Race through it, but if you want to ask questions about any of that, uh, have at it and we'll try to answer them.